one of the great works of the Holy Spirit, which every believer has, is the desire that every believer can enjoy the comforting assurance of salvation that they have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way or the method by which he brings this comfort is to take the things of Christ and to make them known to us. Uh, in that passage we read in John 16, we read, However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but ever, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. In other words, the Holy Spirit takes the words of God, takes the very thoughts of God, if I can put it like that, and makes them known to us so that we reflect on the Lord Jesus Christ and all he's done. He knows that the more fully we know Christ, the more clearly we will see him. And the more we enjoy the comfort and assurance of seeing and knowing Christ, the more certain we will feel about the assurance we have of our salvation. Therefore, the Spirit of God always points us to Christ, especially through his inspired word, the Scriptures, as we were thinking about this morning. He not only tells us who Christ is and what he's done and what he's doing in us, but he also uses metaphor after metaphor to show us pictures of our great saviour. These pictures are designed to assure God's believing people that all is well between them and God. And this idea, this theme, is repeated throughout this book of Genesis. And in the passage that we're looking together this evening in chapter 43, the Spirit of God gives us another beautiful and instructive picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace of God in him. As Judah became surety or guarantor for Benjamin, assuming all responsibility for him, so the Lord Jesus Christ, who came from the tribe of Judah, became the surety for God's people even before the world was made. In the covenant of grace, it is that Jesus Christ assumes total absolute responsibility for the salvation of God's people. The writer to the Hebrews says, by so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. And this evening, as God enables, I'm going to try and explain what a surety or guarantor is in this connection and how the Lord Jesus performs this work on our behalf. But before we do that, we need to set the scene in Genesis. As I mentioned earlier, some little while since we've looked at this. So let's just remind ourselves of the key themes that we've been looking at. We've been following the story of Genesis, and we've seen that the central theme is the seed or the line of Abraham. We've traced that way back to Adam and Eve, and then through their son Seth, down to Noah, then on to Abraham, and now on to Jacob and his family. This line is the promised seed, and that seed will eventually culminate in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But before we get there, we will see it will take us to the great King David. 
It's been a line that's been fraught with trials and problems. We've been amazed, haven't we, as we thought about it, why God even bothered to carry on when we think of the actions uh, of men uh, such as Noah and their unfaithfulness, of Abraham and his doubts and all of those things. You would have thought, well, surely God would dispense with such things. But he's been pleased to use the frailty of men and women to bring about his uh, providence. And it is with all the uh, disappointments, with the failures and sinfulness, sinfulness, that God is working out his promise and purpose. And this is seen particularly here right from the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, where the promise of the one who would come, who would take uh, the sin of his people. Now, we've reached the stage in our narrative. We can't go through all the aspects of the previous 42 chapters of Genesis. But we've reached the stage in our narrative where Jacob and his 12 sons are in turmoil. You may remember that it was out of jealousy that the 10 sons sold Joseph into slavery. And we've seen the providential events that have taken Joseph into Egypt where at this point, as we've been reading in chapter 43, uh, that uh, Joseph, despite the problems of trials and false accusations and times of imprisonment, Joseph has now risen to be the prime minister of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh in the whole nation. And then through the dreams that God gave to Pharaoh, Egypt makes ready for the coming famine. It was to be very severe. If you remember the story, uh, the prophecy would be that there would be uh, seven years of uh, provision, seven years of plenty, and that would be followed by seven years of famine. And then in the seven years of plenty, uh, Joseph, uh, acting as prime minister, filled all the barns in Egypt with grain so that now they are the ones who are well provided for as they go into this period of seven years of famine. And as this famine goes on, Jacob and his 11 sons and their families back in Canaan are facing starvation. And so Jacob sends his 10 sons to Egypt to buy food. His youngest and most precious son, Benjamin, would not be risked on such a journey. He will be kept at home. And when the boys arrive in Egypt, they do not recognise who this prime minister is. They don't recognise their brother Joseph. But they buy the food needed and start on their return journey to Canaan. And then it is at this point they find that the money that they had paid for the food was put back in their sacks. And as a result, Simeon is imprisoned. And the remaining sons of Jacob are told that they must not return again to Egypt without bringing the youngest son, Benjamin, with them. The famine was to last seven years, and it's therefore it's no surprise that the day has come when the food the brothers had brought back from Egypt would be exhausted. And again, the family were facing starvation. And this was to be a further testing time for the sons of Jacob. Simeon was still held in custody in Egypt, but had there been a real change of heart in these brothers? Had this over the period, had they mellowed, were they still filled with the hatred of jealousy which they had sown to Joseph in the first place? 
But now a second journey to Egypt is required. And we'll see how Judah takes the lead, how Joseph sets a test. And we can see the work of our Saviour illustrated in these verses. But Judah takes the lead. Now, nobody in Canaan would have thought that the famine would last so long, but the food was all but gone, and their only hope of surviving would be to return to Egypt and to buy more grain. And as we've said before, it would be the eldest son normally who would take the lead, and that was Reuben. But Reuben had disgraced himself. He had slept with his father's concubine. We read of that in chapter 49. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power, unstable as water. You shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So Reuben is no longer the natural leader of this tribe of sons. The second eldest, of course, was Simeon, but he's in prison in Egypt. So the responsibility now falls on Judah. And although in this story and in the remaining chapters that we will look at as time allows in due course from chapter 43 through to the end of Genesis, the emphasis is all on Joseph. He becomes the preeminent. And we see in him that he's a type of Christ. But it is actually Judah who is of the promised line. It will be through Judah that this line will continue and go down eventually to David and then on to Christ. But there's a problem, of course, in the boys returning to Egypt to buy more food. Judah spoke to his father and saying, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with us. If you send our brother with us, we'll go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. The brothers, of course, were still not aware that the governor of Egypt is in fact the one they're calling the man. It was no other than Joseph, their brother. But Judah made it clear that they would not be able to buy food, nor will Simeon be released unless Benjamin goes with them. This was to be a test for Jacob, you see. Would he let his dear son, Benjamin? Part of the problem had been the way that he showed such favoritism upon Joseph and Benjamin that made those other sons jealous. That was the real start of the issue and the problem. Would now he let his dear son, who was uh, the uh, son of his dearest wife, Rebecca, go for the sake of Simeon and the rest of the family? But Judah says there's no alternative. Either Benjamin goes with them or they starve. Jacob is beginning to hold his sons responsible. Do you see the way he accuses them? Why did you tell them about your brother? He's accusing some of his sons for the trouble they're in. But of course we know the story. and Jacob only knows half of the extent of their culpability. But time is running out. Judah urged his father to send Benjamin with them. And then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both you, both we and you and our little ones also. But Judah goes on further. He says, I myself will be a surety for him or guarantee for him that my hand you shall require if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. 
He offers himself as a surety or as a guarantee for Benjamin. He realises the special place that Benjamin has in his father's heart. And Judah is stating that he will do all that is necessary to guarantee the safety of Benjamin and to bring him back safely to his father. He personally will pay whatever price is necessary to ensure he's brought back to his father. And Jacob accepts this. Jacob accepts that Benjamin must go and he gives Judah and the brothers a double payment to take to the governor of Egypt. He sends the very best gifts he has. He sends the money which had been returned back with them. What is happening here, you see, is now suddenly Jacob is declaring his trust in God. He realises that if the family are to be fed, Benjamin has to go. And whilst it would break his heart if anything happened to his dear child, he realised it was necessary, so he gives him into the hands of Judah to take and protect him. Would Benjamin be returned? Jacob sees, for the sake of the new generation of his tribe, he reconciled himself to the possibility that he might not see Benjamin again. There has been a change of heart in Jacob. And we'll see shortly there will be a change in heart of the ten sons. Things were changing. They were starting to realise that they needed to put their trust in God. Jacob realised that as far as he's concerned, of course, he's already lost Joseph. He had no idea that Joseph was still alive. And now he's trusting his closest love, that is Benjamin, to God. And he sees that God will do what is right. And he says, if I'm bereaved, I am bereaved. It's not a fatalistic approach. It's not the idea what will be will be. But rather like Esther, you remember the story of Esther, as she has to go before the king and to, to plead for the people and for Mordecai. And as she goes before the king to, on behalf of the people, she says, if I perish, I perish. What is happening there? Well, it's an acceptance of God's will. This was no leap in the dark by Esther. It was no leap in the dark by Jacob at this point. It is a trust in God Almighty, whatever the outcome. And that's a challenge to our faith. It's a challenge to our trust in God. We face a day when there are so many difficult things, so many trials. About. We often say there are so many folks in our own fellowship that are struggling with health issues and all the rest. Such things come and are always a challenge to the reality of our faith. It's when those things we hold dear, which might be our health or someone we love, or our possessions are at risk, that we realise the truth of our trust in the providence of our sovereign God. You know, back in chapter 22, we find Jacob is being called Jacob. But now, his new name is being used. Just interesting, the way uh, that Moses, who wrote those scriptures, just suddenly changes the name. So in verse 6 of chapter 43... We don't find, and Jacob said, it's and Israel said. So why was that happening? Well, I would suggest that this was a new expression of trust in God. This was a new relationship that Jacob was having. And now he finds a situation which he can't cope with, he can't handle, he can't see the way out, he has great concern about it. 
and he realises the only thing he can do is that full-hearted trust in the God of heaven. He calls him God Almighty, El Shaddai, and that's where his trust is. Secondly, we find here that Joseph sets a test for the brothers. You can imagine the the minds of the brothers were working overtime when they came again before Joseph. Would he still think they were spies? Would he think that they were thieves? Would he still want to charge them with taking back the money they had brought? They were full of guilt and distrust and suspicion. And you know, such things often arise because what we're finding with these brothers is they still haven't faced up to their sin. They still haven't got to their point where they're confessing their wrongdoing uh, before God in heaven and before their father. And it was the state of these ten brothers that these unconfessed sin was why they were so full of guilt and distrust and suspicion and difficulties. And they would need to come to that point, and they will do in due course, but not quite at the moment. They're now back in Egypt, and since they've arrived... They've been treated very kindly, and that just confuses them even more. They were to be given the great honour of a meal in the governor's home, but all their fears and guilts were still around. So they take opportunity to speak to the steward of Joseph. They tell him about the money being found in their sacks. But the steward assures them that the money he'd paid for the food on their first visit had been received. So how had that money come back? The steward said, peace be with you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. It's interesting that the steward, the Egyptian steward, recognizes that the God of Israel is the God who has been working in their lives. Perhaps even the brothers didn't see this at this time. For you see, what had happened is that the gift, the refund of the money, as it were, had come from Joseph himself. And perhaps it's the first time they were starting to realise that God was at work. Is this not, can I suggest, a problem we often find ourselves in? And that's failing to recognise God's provision, seeing him at work in our lives we find we hit a snag or a problem or a trial or a disappointment or a disaster. And we're perhaps for the first time at moments thinking of seeing all these events as a coincidence, uh, good fortune or whatever. We put them down to our own abilities rather than seeing, as this steward said, your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sight. It is as we face problems, they should drive us to God. I know that's easier said than done, but that's where we need to go, for that's where we will find comfort and encouragement. That's where we will find hope and peace in our heart. These sons were looking for the grace of God. And the words of the steward set their minds at rest. They were united with their brother Simeon. They were given water to wash themselves. They prepared for the meal. Joseph meets with them. He inquires deeply after their father. And then he meets Benjamin, his true brother, the other son of Rachel and Jacob. 
And Joseph, as we might imagine, was so overwhelmed that he has to leave the room to compose himself. He returns and the meal is served. As governor, Joseph sits on his own. The Egyptians sit at another table and Joseph's brother at a third, for they could not eat at the same table. But something amazing had happened because Joseph had placed out all the positions on the table for the brothers and he'd put the eldest at one end and the youngest at the other and all the others in the order of age. Oh, it seems such a little thing. But really, that's quite remarkable because the brothers say, how is this? How could this happen? How could this come about? He had set the brothers at the table. They were amazed. They'd been put in age order by someone they considered a stranger. Someone, you know, they love to work out these chances of things, these probabilities. Some of them worked out, but that to actually happen was something like 40 million to one. But Joseph knew these men. And Joseph had singled out Benjamin. Firstly, he pronounced a blessing on him. We read in that in verse 29. Then Joseph lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. He hadn't done that to the other ten brothers. But more than that, Benjamin was again shown favoritism by Joseph. He was served with us five times as much as the others. It's an incredible amount, isn't it? You think you might have given him a double portion, but it's five times as much. It's as though Joseph was really laying it on. He was really showing this. Would these brothers show their hatred of jealousy as they'd done to him when they see how Benjamin is treated? For that was the prime reason for the hatred towards Joseph in the first place. And the brothers passed the test. They were in good spirits. They enjoyed the meal together. They accepted what was happening. Joseph here was acting wisely as a leader, a man who feared God, who sought to promote righteousness, peace, and unity amongst his people. And again in Joseph, we start to see the one whose rule is characterized by truth, humility, and righteousness. And we will see this more and more as we go through these concluding chapters in Genesis. But I want to draw a particular lesson as we start to move to a close this evening from this passage and how the work of Christ for his people is illustrated. And it is in verse 9 when Judah says, I myself will be a surety or guarantee for him. From my hand you will require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. And I want us to see that Jesus is our surety. As the brothers set out for Egypt, Judah acted as Benjamin's surety or guarantor of safety. He assumed all responsibility for him. So the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself had come from the tribe of Judah, becomes the surety of all God's people. If you're a Christian this evening, Christ is your surety before God. In the covenant of grace, the Lion of Judah assumes total and absolute responsibility for the salvation of his people. Hebrews 7.22, by so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. 
So why is Christ our surety? Well, what is a surety? A surety is a guarantee. It's a guarantee, is a commitment to make good that which was defective. It's one person placing themselves under an obligation to the person he represents. So Jesus became our surety by voluntarily placing himself in commitment to God his Father until he has made good all that the Father gave him. In other words, Jesus guarantees to his Father that we, if we are in Christ this evening, will be made good. That is, every sin will be removed. We will be made righteous before God. Jesus pledged himself according to the will of God to make those who believe righteous and holy by satisfying all of God's law and justice on their behalf. Now, this isn't just a nice theological point. It is a point that brings us great help and encouragement and peace in the day in which we live. For Jesus has guaranteed to put away all the sins of his people. It is that he's given them a new holy nature at new birth. He's agreed to raise them up perfect, and so fitting them and giving them the guarantee of eternal heaven in the Father's presence and glory. And the Father accepted the guarantee or the surety of Jesus and entrusted his sheep into the care of the great shepherd. You realise how laughable that makes the idea that we're responsible for our own salvation. For we could never guarantee that we would be right with God when we come into his presence. But here, Jesus Christ is guaranteeing that his people will be fit for heaven. As Israel accepts Judah's guarantee for the safety of Benjamin, so God the Father accepts the guarantee of Jesus for his people. In John 6, we read, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The matter of our salvation has been settled between Father and Son, and not one will be left out. doesn't matter if you're the weakest of faith, you feel yourself so pathetic in the sight of God. If your hope and trust is in Christ this evening, you have this guarantee Christ is your surety. He guarantees that you will be in heaven with him. So how is Christ our surety? Well, when Christ became our surety, he didn't merely agree to meet our obligations to God's law in case we might not be able to fulfill them ourselves, but Christ took upon himself all the responsibility of our total obligation to God's law and justice. Every part of of God's law in our lives is fulfilled because of what Christ has done. You know, if we look at the guarantor or a surety in the world in which we live, there are times when you can be legally forced to be a guarantor, for example, responsible for the debts and actions of our young children. 
There are times when we may want to act as a guarantor, but we must be acceptable to the point to the person requiring the guarantee. Had a very vivid illustration of this recently. Our granddaughter and her husband recently married. They were taking a flat in a city where they'd never lived before. They had no history of having paid rent and so on. And the uh, landlord said, well, I want a guarantor, someone who'll guarantee the payment of the rent if you default. So one of their fathers offered to act as a guarantor, but that was rejected because he didn't earn enough. One of the grandfathers was rejected because he was too old and because he was retired. And eventually they found someone who was acceptable. In other words, the one who is the guarantor must be acceptable to the one who's requiring the guarantee. And the only one who is acceptable to God is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the only guarantor of surety acceptable to God the Father. And Christ took on his responsibilities voluntarily and cheerfully so that he could obey his Father's will and to fulfil his law. So what does this mean for us? When Christ became our surety, he became responsible for all our obligations to God. If we're a Christian, we're released from all our sins against God. We're free from the curse and the penalty because all the sins of God's people were imputed. That's placed on Christ and he took them all. So we're redeemed, we're justified, we are pardoned, we're made righteous in God's sight. What did Christ do as our surety? Well, he made certain promises to the Father. Those promises made voluntarily, and so that he acted as our surety. He willingly said to the Father, place their sins on me, every single one of them. Leave out none so they won't have anything to ask uh, before you, because all would have been covered. He promised to fulfill all our responsibilities to God, to gain perfect obedience to the law of God. And he promised to bring all of God's people safely to glory. Judah said to Benjamin, I myself will be a surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. And so Jesus declares before God his Father when he says, according in Hebrews 2.13, here am I and the children whom God has given me. In presenting himself before his Father, he presents us with him and says, here I am, my Father, and these are the children you've given me, and I've guaranteed them, and they're all covered, every sin dealt with. Jesus promised to reconcile every one of God's people to the Father by his atoning sacrifice on the cross so that we can stand before God, perfect in every way, free from every taint of sin, whole, bearing the righteousness of Christ himself so that we are brought safely into the fold. And that should cheer our hearts this night that should lift us up before our great God. Christ is our great surety. If we're truly trusting in him this evening, 
he has promised to do everything that is necessary to get us to heaven. Is that your experience? Are you rejoicing that Christ is your surety before God this night? To think we can become a true child of God and then lose our salvation is to call both God and Christ liars. There are those who would say, well, you know, I was a Christian for a while. Well, that's nonsense. You're either a Christian or you're not. And if you are a Christian, it is for a lifetime and for eternity because it is that Christ has guaranteed it. For God has promised to accept the surety of Christ and his work on behalf of sinners for their eternal salvation. And it is this great guarantee that gives our hearts peace before God. When the situation gets difficult, when we wake up on a Monday morning and we think of the maybe all the uh, medical appointments we've got for a week, or maybe the work situation and the troubles and the difficulties, and we know the problems can bear, or uh, in our school, another uh, week of having to uh, take the mickey taking of others because we want to make a stand for Christ, all of those things. It is this very fact that Christ is our surety and nothing can ever break us or separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. It is a peace that is beyond understanding. It is a peace that comes in knowing that every sin has gone and our salvation is assured before God in heaven. And we give him all the praise and all the glory for Christ's sake. Amen.